as we come to God's word now, I'll pray. So please join me in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to this new sermon series in 1 and 2 Kings, uh, please help us. Uh, We do stand far from the time and culture of the people in this narrative, but we know that your words of life to them are also words of life to us as we read about it. Uh, Help us to trust your word as we come to it now, and use me, I pray, to preach it faithfully and apply it helpfully by your spirit. Amen. Uh, it's a big thing to trust someone with your life. Uh, you'll understand that it's a small level. If you've ever done that trust exercise where you uh, say to someone, you know, turn around, close your eyes, fall backwards, and I'll catch you. Now, in such a moment, if someone says that to you, you have to make the call as to whether you can actually trust the words of that person. Is he or she the sort of person that's actually capable of catching you? Or are they a bit clumsy? Or are they the sort of person who would, you know, step to the side at the last minute as a cruel, practical joke? Perhaps some of you experienced that. Now, falling backwards is one thing, but what about the trust required if you were ever to go skydiving? where you have to jump out of a plane attached to a professional skydiver. And so when he says to you at 5,000 feet above the earth, don't worry, I won't forget to pull the cord, you'll have an amazing experience, could you trust those words when the stakes of life are so high? See, it's a big thing to trust someone with your very life. We have to know their words are reliable and true. Well, in tonight's passage, God is wanting you to see that he is someone that you can trust with your life, both now and into eternity. In fact, this passage that we just heard read shows us that God is someone you can trust to give you life in a broken world marked by sin and death. I've titled this sermon series, God's Word for a Broken World. And tonight in this first talk in 1 Kings, Uh, we're going to spend some time thinking about how reliable God's life-giving word is. You see, in today's passage, we see God essentially saying to his prophet Elijah and then to the widow, trust me with your life. I'll save you. I'll sustain you. Both people hear God's word, they believe it, they trust it, then they ultimately reap the blessings. As we look to these examples and then to the words of Jesus to which they point, God is wanting you to finish listening to this and cry out along with the woman at the end of this chapter, now I know that the word of the Lord is the truth. I too can trust my life into God's hands. But first, some context. Uh, Where are we up to in the biblical storyline? Who's who and what's happening here in the middle of 1 Kings? Uh, Well, the account that we are reading today comes in a time in Israel's history in which God's people were divided into two kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, as you can see on the map. Uh, These two territories had once been united under the rule of King David and then his son, King Solomon, But the kingdom had divided following Solomon's death. And as a result, you now have two lines of kings, each ruling one of those kingdoms. Now, while the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, did have a few pretty good kings and a host of bad ones, the northern kingdom of Israel 
basically had no good kings. Israel was a sorry story of one bad king after another. All of them simply refused to honor God and worship him in the devoted way God wanted them to. Most of the kings mostly mixed a kind of uh, regional pagan worship with worship of the true God. But you see, King Ahab, who we come across at the start of our passage tonight, the northern king at the time of Elijah, he's actually described as the worst of all of Israel's kings up until his time. And you see that come out quite clearly in the previous chapter, chapter 16, when we read this about him. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the first bad king of the north, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Nasher a pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord the God of Israel, then did all the kings of Israel before him. You see, the king of God's people was supposed to be the one who would lead the people in trusting God and living his way in the land. Ahab does the complete opposite. He establishes a pagan god known as Baal as the god who now must be worshipped and served in totality in Israel. See, what little acknowledgement of the Lord that had been around previously, was now completely removed through this religious revolution brought in by Ahab. Uh, During the French Revolution, uh, the atheistic revolutionary leaders actually outlawed Christianity and turned many of the famous Catholic cathedrals into what they called temples of reason. Uh, In the Notre Dame Cathedral, for instance, busts of philosophers were placed along the nave of the cathedral, and an altar dedicated to reason was erected in the prime position. Crowds would gather in these former churches and pay homage to an opera singer who personified the goddess of liberty. The word of human reason replaced the word of God's revelation. Now, can you imagine being a Christian in French society at that time amidst that kind of idolatry? Now, imagine being sent by God to call out the main idolater and revolutionary leader. Well, that was Elijah's lot in an idolatrous Israel. Elijah was a prophet of God from a kind of backwater Israelite town called Tishbe, and he was used by God to get God's message across to his people Israel, to proclaim judgment on their idolatry so they would wake up from their sin and start trusting God again. Verse 1 starts out on that note. Now, Elijah, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. A nation rejecting God would now be a nation judged by God. No rain except at my word. Now, so if verse 1 gives us a picture of the misery that comes from kind of rejecting God, well, the rest of this chapter actually gives us a picture of the life and security that flows from trusting in God and his word. 
So let's look at the first picture we get of God's life-giving word to Elijah. And you see, it really is a life-giving word, isn't it? God doesn't say to Elijah after he delivers that message to Ahab, well, thanks for passing on my message to that evil tyrant uh, who will now want to kill you. Good luck and all the best. No, God doesn't leave Elijah to fend for himself. He tells him, basically, trust me with your life. Go and hide out in that remote location east of Israel, verse 2, and I'll look after you when you get there. How? Delivery ravens. Verse 4 tells us that. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed ravens to supply you with food there. Now just think about that for a moment. Trust me with your life, I'll send you the ravens. Uh, Do you trust God with that word, or do you try and think up a more reasonable plan? Well, Elijah trusts God with that word, and it pays off. Verse 5 tells us that he did what the Lord told him to do, goes to the hideout location, and just as God had said, verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. See, Elijah gets his first recorded taste of God's surprising and wonderful faithfulness here. These delivery ravens were a reminder morning and evening that God's word is trustworthy. Now, just a quick note, if I can just pause here for a moment, about miracles. Uh, If you're not a Christian and you're with us tonight, you might be here at this point simply thinking, okay, I've just heard about a miracle, funny ravens doing things. Uh, I'm kind of checking out at this point. Miracles in the Bible never really happened. I believe in science. Well, if that's, if that's you, let me encourage you not to check out. Uh, you see, if it's true that God exists, and I think there's good evidence that he does, you can come and talk to me afterwards. And if it's the case that God desires to make himself known to our world in particular key moments of his choosing, Couldn't it make sense that he, as God, could easily get his message across in a way that is beyond the physical laws that govern our world? You see, if God is there and he wants us to, and he wants to be known by us, miracles actually can happen. So don't be too quick to dismiss the miracles that you are going to be reading about a lot throughout this series. But if you want to talk more about that, please come and I'll speak with me afterwards. Now, God sustains Elijah for quite some time in this location, enough time, in fact, for the effect of the drought to reach his hideout. And you see it in verse 7. Sometimes late, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, if I was Elijah in this moment, um, I'd be starting to feel a little bit anxious. I mean, bread and meat delivered by ravens is good, but I'm going to need something to wash it down with or else I'm in trouble. But notice it's at this moment when his life is on the line again that God's life-giving word interjects itself into the story. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. 
Now, you just sort of need to appreciate how kind of shocking that statement is. You see, God was not promising Elijah that he would be looked after by a secret, God-fearing, well-to-do Israelite. He was promising him that a pagan widow in the Baal-worshipping territory of Sidon would be his help. A widow. A person who in ancient times would have been among the most impoverished. Unable to provide for herself, let alone anyone else. God is saying to Elijah, trust me with your life and go to the widow. Well, Elijah, just as he trusted God when it was ravens, he trusts God now when it's the widow. Verse 10 tells us that he goes to her hometown of Zarephath, verse 10, and there his life is further sustained, as we'll think about shortly, just as God said it would be. You see, through the unexpected means of ravens, then a widow, God is showing us here with Elijah that his word is powerful and reliable to give and sustain life. And see, I think we need that reminder uh, now, perhaps more than ever. If we want true life and lasting security, we're only going to find it in God the God we read about here. I've been reflecting on the COVID-19 vaccines for a little while and the way in which uh, our world often talks about them since they've been developed. What I often hear from many news commentators and articles I read uh, when the vaccines are talked about, particularly in the early development stages, was the language of miracle. Isn't it miraculous that a vaccine has been developed so quickly You see, in the minds of most people, it's not a miracle that's come from God's kindness, but a miracle that's come from humanity's intellect and power. The wisdom of our scientists, the wealth of our governments, the service structures in our community, that's how we pulled off a miracle as humanity, to save ourselves. You see, the vaccines are great, and we should be thankful for them, but they can only ever delay death at best for those who can get access to it. But God is showing us here that his word has a power to save and to sustain life that is actually so much better than the best efforts of our world. God's word has the power to actually defeat death itself if we will listen to it and trust it. And you see, that's what we see in God's dealing with the no-name widow in the rest of the passage. So let's look at her story right now. God's word of life to the widow. Uh, Read with me from verses 10 onwards and just try to get a sense of how desperate this woman's situation is. So he went to the town of Zarephath where he came to the town gate. A widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, Uh, Would you mind bringing me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. At least he uses his manners. Uh, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replies, I don't have any bread. Uh, Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. Uh, I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Uh, Do you kind of get the sense of how hopeless her situation is here? 
how fearful she must be. See, she is staring starvation directly in the face. She's convinced that once that half cup of olive oil and flowers gone in her cupboard, she'll be gone. But it's not just her, is it? She's experiencing every parent's worst nightmare in the thought of her child dying as a child. She knows that her son too will starve to death also. Just imagine the grief and the horror that is kind of swirling around in her life at this point. Now into all of this, a prophet from Israel walks into her front yard and asks her for a loaf of bread. Now, perhaps in normal circumstances, not famine circumstances, she would have obliged. But at this point, to to give over that last bit of food would essentially be to give away her last few treasured days with her son. How could she give away something so precious? See, look, but into all of that desperation, God, through his prophet, says to her, trust me with your life. See, look at what Elijah says to her in verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me uh, from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. You see the call to trust there. Let go of your little, and I promise you God will give you a lot. Uh, For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends the rain, rain on the land. Don't be afraid. That's God's first message to her. All the things that that terrify you about your situation, I'll look after you. You'll be fine. You're not going to starve. You're not going to lose your son. I'll look after the pair of you. Trust me with your life. And just like Elijah, she does. This poor widow basically says, okay, God, I'm betting everything I have on you. I will trust what you say. And that's really what I think it is to put your trust in God in the way he wants us to. It's to say, God, you get everything. My whole life in your hands, trusting in your promises of life. And you see her trust played out in her actions. Verse 15 tells us that she went away and did as Elijah had told her. And what was the result? Verse 15. There was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. She'd gone all in with God and it paid off big time. Now, it's not quite happily ever after at that point though, is it? See, this woman goes from experiencing the glory of God's provision to actually witnessing the horror of her son's death. Just look at verse 17. Well, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill me? I mean, they are some seriously anguished words. Uh, Maybe you've gone through uh, a massive grief of your own and 
you kind of get a sense of where this woman's coming from. The unbearable pain, the anger perhaps directed at God, all those why questions. Maybe like this woman, you've, you've thought that your suffering is even a, a, perhaps a form of punishment from a God who maybe isn't as gracious as you were first told. And you can imagine this woman's conversation with Elijah. You told me not to be afraid. You said God would save me and my son. But my big initial fear, that's become a reality. My boy is dead. Am I such a terrible sinner that God would want to set me up so high only to be brought down so severely? I wonder if you've ever been anywhere near that headspace. It's like that trust exercise I spoke about at the start. The woman kind of heard God say, fall back and I'll catch you, only to now think that he has stepped to the side to let her crash on the ground. So how does Elijah respond to this woman in her anguish? Well, he goes to God in passionate prayer and pleads for the boy's life. Look at verse 19. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took her from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed. Then he cried to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Now, it's hard to know exactly the reason why Elijah stretches himself out over the boy's body three times. Uh, The best explanation I've come across is that it was perhaps a symbolic act in which Elijah is perhaps using symbolism, saying to God, please God, as life runs through my outstretched body, may it run through his outstretched body. Elijah is crying out for life in the face of death here. And that's a cry I think most of us can resonate with because death is horrible and we don't want it in our world. See, I don't know about you, but I watched uh, the Prince Philip's funeral service last week. I have a big soft spot for the Queen. And... I don't know if you watched it, I just found the whole thing really sad. Seeing the Queen just sitting there, now a widow herself, all alone and grieving for her husband of 74 years. See, death is awful. Even when the person has lived a full and long life like Philip, I don't think that takes away the sting. It's still sad. Death affects each of us, whether you're an honored queen or an overlooked widow. Death is awful. It takes away those we love. One day it takes away us. But you see, for this widow in this passage, in this moment of time, death doesn't get the final say over her son, does it? God does something breathtakingly wonderful. He hears Elijah's prayer and raises that boy to life. The boy's life returned to him and he lived. 
Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room in the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Imagine the joy in that mother's heart in that moment. In allowing her son to die and then raising him up to life, God shows this woman that his word of life that he'd given to her is so trustworthy that not even death itself can stop it. See, she had not been set up like she thought she might have been. She would not be left disappointed. She would get more than she could possibly have imagined from God. And that's why she replies to Elijah, as she does in the last verse. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. See, her big point, the big point of 1 Kings 17, is that we look at what what God does for this widow and for Elijah before her, and actually reach the same conclusion she does. The life-giving word of the Lord is the truth. It's reliable. If you listen to it, if you trust it, you won't be disappointed. Now, I suspect many of us wish we actually had an Elijah living in our spare bedroom, like this woman. I mean, wouldn't it be great to uh, not have to go to the shops but simply have your house guests keep the cupboards full? Uh, Wouldn't it be so good to have someone with you who could plead to God on your behalf to change an awful situation, the death of a loved one, a bad diagnosis, a relationship breakdown? I suspect many of us actually get get to the end of this passage and think, wouldn't it be nice if God sent an Elijah into my life? Well, the truth of the matter is that God has given you someone far better than Elijah, who has a far better word of life for you. God has given to you Jesus. See, this passage gives us a taste of God's power to bring life, but it's actually only in Jesus that God's life-giving power is revealed in its full glory. You see, Jesus didn't arrive on the scene like Elijah as simply a man of God. He came as a man who is God. Where Elijah needs to kind of plead with God to bring this boy's life back, Jesus in the gospel simply speaks and the dead are raised. In fact, there was a moment in Jesus' ministry where he actually came across a similar circumstance, a widow whose only son had died, the widow of Nain. And what did he do? Well, Luke 7 tells us that he simply walks up to the dead body and he speaks to it. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. See, this is Jesus showing us that he has God's power to bring you life in the face of death. You can trust him with your life. 
But the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he didn't actually just come to give us a little bit more of this life as we know it now. You see, while it's wonderful that both the son of the widow in Elijah's day and the son of the widow in Jesus' day, while it's wonderful that both of those boys were raised, the truth is that both boys would have, had, would have just once again gone back into a world of death, actually. They both would have started to grow old again, continue to experience the various ups and downs and trials of this life, and then at the end they too would eventually die again. Now, I don't say that just to be a party pooper in what we've just read. I say it to show you that a true answer to life and death actually has to go further than that. And you see, in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, he gives us something that goes beyond that. You see, death is ultimately God's punishment for our sin and rebellion against God. In many ways, we've acted like ancient Israel, where we've said, basically, God, I want to live life on my terms. I don't really want to have to listen to you. We die because we've chosen to ignore God and reject his rule in our life. But in taking our punishment of that sin by his death on the cross for us, Jesus brings us forgiveness of that sin rebellion. And in bringing us forgiveness actually imparts to us life. Life that is eternal. Life in which we are reconciled to the God we have been separated from. Life that's spiritual, life that will last beyond death into eternity. You see, the widow's sons, the widow's son was raised to a little bit more of this life. Jesus tells us that he is the resurrection and the life, and that he raises us up bodily to an eternity of bodily life in the new creation where brokenness, trials, and death, they're all no more. Who would you rather have in your life, an Elijah or Jesus? 1 Kings 17 is a foretaste of the better life that Jesus offers you, a better life, a better love. Have you put your trust in Jesus and his word of life to you. Because he is most certainly saying to you that you will find eternal life if you trust him. He's saying to you, trust me with your life. I love Peter's response when Jesus asks him, if he's going to be like so many of the other Jews in his day who gave up on following him, what does Peter say? He answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Follow Peter's example and trust your life, trust Jesus with your life. Uh, The widow shows us that going all in with God, with Jesus, is the best decision you can make. Now, if you want to talk about that further, then come and speak to me. Uh, You can also sign up to the Christianity Explore course that begins this Tuesday. But finally, to those of you uh, who have gone all in with Jesus and are trusting him 
with your life. Uh, This passage is a call to keep trusting him when disappointments, when hardships, when terrible griefs rattle your life. Because they will. See, Elijah, he had to watch as the brook dried up before his eyes. The widow had to watch as her son's life slowly ebbed away. Both were actually trusting in God. Both experienced hardship. And for the woman, you see, it rattles her to the core. As I'm sure it has with many of you who have been through hardship. You know, how could God let me lose my job like that? Why am I suffering with this illness, God? God, I'm in grief. I want my loved one back. God, life feels so lonely. Do you even care? Am I being punished here? See, there will be times in life, and perhaps you're going through one right now, where you wonder whether Jesus' word of life for you, whether his love for you is truly reliable. Or has he stepped to the side in your exercise of trust in him and let you crash? Well, to those of you who are walking through the midst of hardship, loneliness, physical pain, grief, heartbreak, joblessness, please know that Jesus' words of eternal life and love are trustworthy for you. So keep crying out to him. Keep asking him for strength. Don't lose hope. He said he will never leave you nor forsake you. And this passage shows us that those words can be trusted. See, like Elijah and the widow, if you keep listening, keep trusting Jesus, ultimately you will not be disappointed. Jesus will walk with you in the pain as he has promised. He will give you grace to endure as he has promised. He will keep loving you as he has promised. And whether or not he brings about temporary relief in this world, he will certainly raise you up to life and an eternity in which every broken aspect of your world is made right. So keep that day in mind. For on that day you will surely be singing with the widow of this passage, I know the word of the Lord Jesus is the truth. Trust him with your life. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God who delights to impart life to those who trust your word. We thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who tells us that if we come to him, we'll not be disappointed but find life, forgiveness, Please bring a deep conviction into all our hearts now as to how much we need Jesus to save and sustain us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.